What do you hear? Just listen. Maybe you hear the sounds of birds whistling their symphonious cacophony in the distance. Or perhaps the oceanic whoosh of traffic passing nearby. Maybe it seems like you hear nothing. But listen closely. Is that the tick of a clock? The creak of an old house? The ever-present buzz of a light or electronics that somehow have become synonymous with silence. Sound is a fascinating thing that connects many of us with the world in which we live, taking into full consideration that not all of us interact with it in the same way. Some of us don't hear or don't hear well and rely on color or feel to engage with the sense. Still, it remains something that is used in nature to woo, perhaps may connect us to our past, and, despite a long history of ears, continues to intrigue and amaze. Welcome. I'm Rocket Fox. Join me for a listen to the strange. Before we dive too deep, I want to take a huge moment to thank you. You! You are incredible and amazing. And because of you, we've reached 1,000 downloads. My loves. I know I say it at the end of every episode, but I cannot stress enough how honored I am and how much this means to me. You keep me going, and knowing that there are others who not only enjoy The Strange as much as I do, but like hearing my stories about it, well, that means the world to me. You may not see these big hard eyes right now, but they're here. And with that, let's get strange. So to really kick us off into the world of sound, I wanted to tickle your eardrums with some interesting facts I found that, surprisingly, despite how loud I feel like I can be, I didn't already know. As many of us already have a passing understanding, sound is fast, really fast, although still slower than light. We experience this every time a delicious thunderstorm rolls through, and you see lightning first, followed then by the thunder. I don't know if anyone else ever was told to count the difference as a child in order to find out how far away the lightning was. One one thousand, two one thousand, three one thousand... There it is. But as I think back on it now, I have zero idea if I ever knew exactly how the counting translated into distance. Well, as of about mm, 
30 seconds ago, I learned the truth about how that equation works. It turns out, according to the National Weather Service, as lightning passes through the air, it makes the surrounding air hot. Really hot. In fact, it can get as high as 50,000 degrees, a.k.a. five times hotter than the face of the sun. This causes the air to expand. Immediately after the flash, the air cools and contracts, and it's this expansion and contraction that causes the thunderous boom that can be heard for up to 10 miles. So all this in mind, you'll see the lightning essentially immediately, but it will take the thunder about five seconds to travel a mile. So if you count those numbers between seeing the flash and hearing that crack of thunder and divide by five, that's how many miles away you are. Bear in mind, even though it's slower than light, it's still really damn fast. In fact, sound travels at 343 meters or 1125.33 feet per second, which, from what I've just learned about thunder, is approximately how fast you would have to run to make a five-second mile. I'll be, uh, working on that. <laughs> the speed of sound is only one of its impressive features, though. Its sheer, well, loudness is a force all unto itself. When thinking of the loudest sound to have been recorded, many might think of a bomb. Honestly, my first thought would have been of one of the atomic bombs dropped in World War II. I hadn't even been thinking of the Tsar Bomba, which was a Soviet mega-nuke that was the largest ever detonated and was so big and destructive, I read that it was, quote, militarily useless. There's only one way I can think of that would make it militarily useless, and that is to say that it would destroy everyone, target and user alike. Of course, when it comes to the power of sound, man-made can't hold a candle to the natural thing, it turns out. A meteor that hit Tunguska, Russia in 1908 exploded at an estimated 300 to 315 decibels, putting it above the aforementioned bombs, as well as having wiped out over 770 square miles of forest when it hit. Just to give you an idea of the sound levels, a jet plane taking off is 120 decibels, ambulances and jackhammers are 130, and fireworks and gunshots are 140. I'll, uh, spare you the sound effects from all of those. <laughs> there is one event that outranks even the Tunguska meteor that we know of, and that is the Krakatoa volcanic eruption of 1883. When it first erupted, it could be heard over 3,000 miles away, and the shock waves of the sound literally exploded the eardrums of anyone within 40 miles of the eruption. 40 miles. That would be 200 seconds of counting, and your eardrums still gone.
which begs the question, and one of my morbidly favorites on the list I found, what would be the minimum level of sound necessary to kill someone? So, decibels operate on a logarithmic scale, meaning that 100 decibels are actually 10 billion times stronger than none, which makes the Tunguska meteor I mentioned a moment ago, weighing in at a mighty 300 decibels, simply mind-boggling. And by mind-boggling, I mean turning your brain into mush, because at 145 decibels, your eyes evidently start to jiggle, and at 165, your eardrums burst. Once you've hit 195, you've passed sound wave and entered shockwave territory, after which internal organs are simply destroyed. This was actually seen following air raids during World War II. There were casualties discovered, but with no discernible wounds of any kind. Once the bodies were given autopsies, it was found that the internal organs had been, well, shockwaved. If you're at all curious about another strange sound phenomenon, I talked about infrasound back in episode 4, so, you know, take a peek if you want to know more about this low level of noise that also has a profound effect on us, only this one tends to leave us feeling a little more spooked than shocked, thankfully. hurt and damage us, as with the Krakatoa eruption and the World War II air raids, it can move us and inspire us, even be the bridge between us and the gods, but can it answer questions about our past? <laughs> as a singer, I have always had a fascination with the human voice. Anyone's voice, really. But I digress. And it seems that as of last year, scientists made an amazing stride toward bridging the gap between the past and present in a way that is so much more visceral and profound than simply gazing upon an old painting or sarcophagus in a museum. His name was Nesyaman. He was a priest with a legacy that would far outlast his life. He sang at the Karnak Temple in Thebes and was known far and wide. So thus was his gift of song that upon his passing it had been inscribed upon his coffin, Nesyaman, true of voice. And he would rest in his tomb for three thousand years. In time, as excavations and research and strides in technology took place, he found himself in the hands of a research team, one that couldn't get the idea of his voice out of their minds. They didn't just want to speculate, though. They wanted to hear it. 
As much as it may seem like a page from Necromancy 101, they weren't the first to dream of hearing a voice long past. In 2016, an Italian research team recreated the voice of Ozzi, a mummified iceman who had been discovered frozen in the Alps. In Ozzi's case, the team used a special software to reposition his body in a way that would allow them to virtually recreate his vocal tract. Because of the condition of his mummified state, MRIs couldn't be used, so they had to rely on mathematical models and a software that would simulate how his voice and all of its components would have worked. Once doing that, and taking his size in consideration for his estimated vocal frequency range, the team brought sound to Otsi's lips for the first time in 5,300 years. For Ness Yaman, he had a few things going for him that Otsi hadn't. For one, his mummification process was more intentional and less lost in the snow, so his throat and mouth were in much better shape. The team was able to use a CT scanner to get a 3D image from within his throat, then have that printed to a 3D printer and combine with an electronic larynx. That's right, we're living in the future. There is footage of the sound, which is uh, definitely strange. <laughs> I'll post it on the Facebook page, as well as link it to the show notes. However, the scientists are hoping to eventually be able to utilize predictive software in determining the priest's tongue size, jaw position, and so forth, so that a working replica can be made that would accurately speak as Nesyamin would have spoken. Though, this does start to beg the question of ethics, in much the same way a lot of the current and up-and-coming film technology does. Being able to replicate someone's voice, someone's face, someone's body, and make them act or say whatever that they haven't agreed to because they're dead. Who has the agency on their behalf? Who makes that call? Once someone is gone, is it right to bring them back to perform for us, regardless of how curious or entertained we might be? Just a little food for thought. story I have for you this week is about a little something I've always been curious about, and I wonder if Nesyaman ever suffered from. Earworms. Uh, the, uh, pre-death kind. You know what I'm talking about, though. Those tunes that get caught in your head, then start to circle round and around, and simply won't leave you in peace. And... I'll be honest with you, 
as I researched, almost every song mentioned immediately jumped into my brain space to remain solidly planted until the next song title was mentioned. Even more obnoxiously, jingles. I had someone simply mention the words, my buddy, and it was stuck in my head for the next five weeks, despite not having seen that Chucky adjacent commercial for over two decades. But what is it about these tunes that holds such unrelenting power? The lead author of the study, Kelly Jakubowski, who is a PhD of Durham University in the UK, pointed out that the team's findings could actually predict what songs might wiggle their way into earworm status, saying, quote, These musically sticky songs seem to have quite a fast tempo, along with a common melodic shape, and unusual intervals or repetitions like we can hear in the opening riff of Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple, or in the chorus of Bad Romance. The study asked 3,000 participants what their most common earworms were, then analyzed the set of 100, comparing to other songs that were equally as popular, and yet somehow not quite as sticky. What they found was most of the songs shared a sort of melodic contour, one they named as mainly being found in Western pop music, common contour patterns where the first phrase rises and the second falls, such as Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and the opening of Moves Like Jagger. The team also found that people seem to like unusual interval structures, things you wouldn't necessarily expect, such as more repeated notes or unexpected leaps. Of course, various research also found that there are independent factors that fall into play as well. For example, the more musical someone is, the more often they suffer from the earworm. A paper in the 2006 Journal of Consciousness Studies, in fact, spoke of a composer and pianist who lived his entire life 24-7 to an ongoing stream of musical consciousness. Of course, while it seems like in some way that could be a musical wonderland, he spoke of it, honestly, being pretty distracting. Additionally, a small study in 2015 published in the Journal of Consciousness and Cognition found that how often people found themselves afflicted by an unending loop of I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts had a lot to do with the thickness of several brain regions. And beyond that, our Dr. Jacobowski found that many times songs tend to stick a bit more when listened to while doing something such as cleaning or jogging. Five-second mile. Come on, five-second mile. All of that said, sadly, she's admitted there's no tried-and-true way to ban the earworm to the CD piles of yesteryear. However, as someone who had to listen to all of the worst offending earwormers, uh, which is a word I hope to never say again, on repeat for many times for the study, she did have a few tips. Trying to distract yourself with a different song, 
walking into the mouth of the beast and engaging directly with the song and listening to it all of the way through in hopes of stopping the internal mental loop. And if all of that fails, there is always the suggestion from the Quarterly Journal of Experimental Psychology that says to disrupt the voluntary memory recollection that gets songs stuck in your head. And the quickest way to do that? Chew a piece of gum. While none of that answers why jingles are still so horrifyingly addictive, and what I can do to harness that power, uh, I mean, stay safe from the evils of advertising, it at least gives some insight into how our brains work with music when it comes to grabbing firmly to a tune and just not letting go. And you know what they say, knowledge is power. And the more you know, G.I. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode of Fantastically Strange. This week's bonus is going a little further into music and a little bird that has some amazingly inherent music theory. If you're curious at all, head on over to patreon.com slash rocketfox to take a listen. And once again, I cannot state my gratitude enough for having you with me on this strange journey. I look forward to bringing you many more strange tales to come. If you would like to visit me online, come on over to fantasticallystrange.com, fantasticallystrange on Instagram, and fantasticoddpod on Twitter. I do all of the things from the writing, producing, editing, and staying up way too late by myself. So if you're enjoying the tales, please leave a rating or review on your podcast listening spot of choice. And if you have any topics you'd like to hear covered, to ask a question, leave a comment, or just say hi, please send me an email at fantasticallystrange at rocketfox.com. The amazing cover art is done by Constance Hermit, and the theme of Hey Dorothy was done by the killer cruise machine. Thank you so much again, and I cannot wait to see you next time.